Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Good evening, Derek. Another episode of The Historians. Here we go. Yeah, good evening, Neil. This lady's going to be very interesting. Uh, she could go down as being a hip human as well. She's been through, uh, yeah, quite quite a bit. She's experienced a lot of living. And a lot of living, she, this lady, yeah. Yeah, born in the Philippines, part of a sex cult. Well, her parents were, so she was born into that. And then went on to have what looks like a decorated career in the United States military. So a lot to talk about here. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, just so it's Daniela Mestiniak. You're way better yeah. at pronunciations than I am. <laughs> uh, so I'm looking forward to speaking to Daniela. I got that bit right. Anyway, and here she is. Welcome, Daniela. Hi, Daniela. Welcome to the Historians. Thank you. Yeah, we're really looking forward to this one. Where, where are you right now? Uh, so I'm in my house. I live near Washington, D.C., um that's my sauna that you see back there which i think is arguably the best thing any veterans have ever done with disability money um (laughs) that's a sauna brilliant Brilliant. and outside in front of me is fake brazil which if you've read the book you will know that's where the epilogue (laughs) ends um and that's where i wrote uncultured so this is like my my writer's space up here this is where you get all the creativity this is where you all channel channel the creativity Though it currently is also where my best friend Danielle is living because she just got back from her deployment too. So, Wow. Okay. So let's jump right into it. What, what stage yeah. are you at in your career? I mean, it's you've got a huge, big story to tell us, Danielle. I really look forward to it. But where you, bring us right up to date, just where, where you're at today with your career. Yeah, so I just published this book, right? It just came out last month. Um, I am working on several new projects. Um, I'm with the Macmillan Speakers Bureau. So I'm doing for like corporations, I do like culture talks. But I think what's unique about me is I really focus on where toxicities come from. So Mm. I find like most speakers, especially speakers on culture, they want to talk about all your good stuff. Um, Most people that study organizational psychology, which I'm about to also complete my master's from Harvard Extension School in organizational psychology, but they focus on like operations on moving forward. And I find that nobody focuses on the enemy, um, mm-hmm. which is the the toxicity, right? Like where these things crop up in our otherwise good groups, because mm-hmm. sort of this is my whole brand, right? Like nobody builds a cult. Nobody joins a cult. They join a group, a gym, a church, a faith, a yoga practice, whatever it is that is like answering this this hole in their soul. Um, so again, I, I'm working on the end of my master's in organizational psychology, but I'm that that person that I feel like focuses on the enemy of the operations, sort of like how I did in the military. And for, um, yeah, for an example of the, of the enemy, like, you know, because you used a few examples there in the gym, presumably in the workplace, 
you know, in all these different places where people gather, who, you know, who and what is the enemy? How do you define that? Yeah, so I look specifically at toxic control, right? And how toxic control grows inside of otherwise good organizations. And there's one, you know, little thing I give people that can be like a quick example, which is cults are always about labor, right? And toxic control in general is about getting your labor. And so you should be looking at like what you are giving to a group, literally in the amount of hours, like how many hours are you giving of a week of your time to this group? And then what are you getting from it? Right. Because this is how these groups, which I think ultimately become cults, but before that they get into toxic control. It's like you ramp up the transcendental mission. Cults are very good at building community, building purpose, right? Motivating people, like all of these things that humans want. And then the logic breaks down, but you end up like you're you're so in there, right? And so at this stage, it's usually pretty hard but you can, you know, back up a little bit and be like, how many hours a week am I giving this group of whatever it is versus like how many hours a week I'm giving other groups or other things in my life. That's how you keep yourself from getting isolated. And then what am I in actual tangibles getting back from this group? Um, And then another good one for individuals, I think is like, what are the exit costs, right? So if I leave, What does it cost me? And that's definitely not just money. That can be saving face. That can be losing community, which is one of the biggest ones, um, which, of course, I go through in Uncultured. Mm. Right. So it's like what, you know, this this from the individual level, of course, if you're the company looking to avoid this, you're going to flip it around. But from the individual level, like looking at your toxic groups, how much of my time is it taking and what does it cost me to leave? And if both of those things are balanced in your life. Cool. It's a. as people like to say sometimes, a good cult, you know. <laughs> good cult. Well, that's, but that, that, that's assuming then that, uh, of course, you have choice in the matter. And it wasn't something, your story, you know, you didn't have choice. You were born Correct. into this in Manila, right? So, yep. and like, what, what, what would, obviously, like being a, you know, a toddler in a group like that, it's just normal, right? It's, everything is just, you know as you'd expect it to be at what point did did you notice that this wasn't so healthy yeah so i think you know based on what you were saying right there's this important difference that i don't feel like i was a cult member i feel like i was a prisoner in this cult for 15 years and like i was born i think this questioning atheist i love logic i'm very very logical. This is why I loved, you know, doing intelligence work in the military. And I think for me, it really started when I was three years old. It's one of my first memories. And we're in a giant commune in Peru. And this is in uh, chapter two, Tale of Two Mommies. And my mom, who's a teenager, she's only 18. And I'm three. She already has two kids by now. She comes and she sneaks me out of the group nap time so that she can teach me to read herself. And she teaches me that reading is amazing because reading is how we get ideas. And she tells me this phrase, like the only thing you need in the world is for someone to teach you how to read because you can teach yourself everything else. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like when I look back, you know, three years old, I got this love of books and this love of learning because it was my connection to my mom, who I didn't get to see more than usually one hour a day. And then the next 12 years proceeded to be extremely illogical where we didn't learn, we banned books, we banned information. 
And that just never made sense to me. And I think this, this really comes to like where adults or people who join cults or, or some of these extreme, extreme groups, they buy into their own brainwashing in a certain way. The group norms shut down the questioning. There's all this stuff to how it works, which I experienced when I joined the army. But when you're a kid that is born into these groups, you question no matter what, right? Children question, that is what happens. And so I feel like we then sort of split into two categories, which was the ones that just kept questioning and kept bashing their heads against the walls and the ones that just sort of put their heads down and went along with it. Um, but I actually think it's it's maybe impossible to turn children into like true believers in quite the same way as the adults that join. And, and and that's that's what I find. Okay. What, whatever about children, right? And like Derek said, you didn't really have a choice until you made your own choices, as it were. You discovered a way of, of expressing your own choices. But what do you think, Daniel, motivates an adult, a grown adult with experience in the world, they've not been in a cult, to then join a cult? I mean, do they not, have they not, have they not read, <laughs> have they not read Rolling Stone? <laughs> have they not read, uh... have they not seen all these stories and documentaries and films? I mean, what? Beggar's belief, I find I find it hard to, I, I like to try and keep an open mind about things, but this one baffles me. I one of the misconceptions that we have about cults, right, is that like people are usually like dumb or poor or desperate or for some reason are drawn to these groups. I always like to remind people that a, a Harvard-educated lawyer died at the Branch Davidian standoff in Waco. Um, and scholars have not found, they have found only one thing that makes people likely to join a cult, and that is being a seeker. seeker. And so, and then what I think is really important, because uh, I think we're going through like a time of culting right now, especially in America. And my second book is going to be called The Culting of America. But uh, we see cults pop up during times of social sort of chaos, confusion, when we're realizing systems don't work and we're literally seeking, right, for new ways of being, new systems of operating. And that's why we saw cults go really big in the US in the 60s, 70s, and then shift over to Asia in the 80s and shift down to Latin America in the 90s. And that's, you know, was also kind of the trajectory of, of my family um, but it, it really is that, right? Like they're dissatisfied with the world. They're searching for something new. And then they find this like way of living that seems to fit their life and reinforce them and give them this mission and give them community and give them love. And if this sounds like soul cycle, you see what I'm talking about. Um, you know, it can, it can, gyms can really easily become sort of toxic control cults. Nonprofits can really easily become sort of toxic con control cults. And then of course, as we see it with religions, right? But it's, it's because people are not like unknowingly getting into cults. People are actively seeking something in their life, something that is missing. And usually it is around these drivers of motivation and community and purpose. It's, I think it's the reason why myself and Derek set up this podcast, Daniela. I think we were looking, <laughs> we were looking, for, looking for something. Yeah. <laughs> And recognizing that is so necessary, right? Because I think, and this happens to so many of us that leave cults or leave these like high control groups. And I use veterans as a perfect example 
right? Like when you're in active duty in the military, like your life is the military. You have very little going on outside of it because they control you sort of physically, but they also give you a purpose. They give you a community from day one. They give you this structure. You know how to function. They tell you the only thing you need to do to be successful is be in the right place at the right time with the right uniform. And so it's like this easy way to just sort of go along to get along. And if you ask veterans after they've left the military, like what their experience is, they'll usually tell you like horror story, horror story, horror story, but then say, but like, I made the best friends of my life and I miss it. Mm -hmm. Right. And I feel like that's the same thing for cult survivors. It's like, we spend our lives chasing that sense of community and that sense of purpose. And I exactly agree with what you said about making the podcast, right? Like that is why I wrote uncultured because I suffered under the delusion that I could put it behind me, right? Like I didn't choose this call. I can run away from it. I can create my whole life. And one day I will have this, you know, moment of success where I will have like overcome my trauma. And of course, you know, uncultured is the story of me realizing like U S army captain presidential award. Like there's no success point where you just get to undo the trauma. And so now I have to deal with it. And I really wanted to, with this book, like thread everything together and make it mean something because, mm -hmm. you know, we, as you said, like we all need that. We all need this kind of mission and purpose and motivation. And I think the more we talk about that and the more aware we are of that, especially as we are pulling down most of the systems in our world right now, um, you know, the better we are going to come out of this. Fascinating. Well, well, trauma is quite, quite, quite difficult to untangle at the best of times, you know, and it, obviously the book is part of that process and it probably will take, take years. I mean, we, you know, human beings all experience trauma. I certainly would have had a, a portion of my life where it was quite traumatic and it does take time, you know, it takes an awful lot of time. Um, but uh, you're really interested. That was one of the things that got me, you know, kind of, uh, I suppose, drew me to your story is like how, how you did it. And, you know, when you move from the, from the cult you know, and, and escaped, you must have felt so lost, you know, that you just, that this, the, the military then was just like putting the jigsaw back together again uh, and just gave you that, that perfect fit, right? I think that's exactly what it was, right? Like when, you know, and I don't, just because of the scope of the book, I don't actually get to spend that much time in the years right after I leave the cult, but it's like, I have this six year period where, you know, I say the best and the worst thing that ever happened to me is that at 15, all of my models disappeared. And so I've had to, you know, sort of question everything, but I've also just had to kind of like find the places to fit. And I would say like in high school, I just miserably failed at that. And I was super lonely and depressed for two years. And then in college, I was, you know, able to like find a major that I loved and get into stuff that I liked and, and get into groups a little bit more. But it absolutely was like when I was joining the military, it was exactly what you said, Derek, like I'm gonna, even though I'm still like weird in the army, like I have this uniform, I have this rank, I'm part of this team. And it immediately like gives you all of this and makes you feel like you fit. And, um, you know, where I say like, I don't feel like I was really ever a cult member. Like I do feel like I bought into the army really hard and sort of tried to be this true believer for a long, long time. Yeah, there's even an excerpt I'm reading here from Rolling Stone, Daniela, it's, you know, it says, I wondered to myself, this is about the military, did I just join another cult? 
the thought brought me some comfort. I knew how to do this. It's amazing because our immediate sense of a cult is bad, right? Just, just it's a bad thing. There's no good thing about it, you know. And yet you're saying that, you know, the fact that you may have joined another cult, as it were, being the military, that brought you some comfort because you knew how to do this. So it's almost like it's come across like this was a strength, you know, during the yes. military. Um, sorry. And oh, sorry, just to finish that point is that, you know, it kind of, for want of a better expression, it almost prepared you. Like most people going to the military would probably struggle, but you, you had a bit of grounding. You had a bit of training to go into the military almost. Yes. And, you know, on, on this point, I would say like, it, it is like that, right? It, so first of all, nobody joins a cult on purpose, right? And so one of the ways that toxic groups will be like, well, you did it by choice, right? That's part of how we buy into our own, you know, me joining the military is a good example of how we buy into our own programming, right? Because every time you're like, this is stupid. Why are we doing this? You're like, I signed up for this. Like I did this to myself, um, which is something I never felt about the cult. So I felt more free to like internally question. And I think you're so right, Neil, about like, how people think of cult as bad, right? And a lot of scholars don't use the word cult. They're like, that's just a slur. Mm. That's, you know, having, and I, I agree that like having the discussion, is this group, is it or is it not a cult? That's the wrong discussion, right? We want to say like, is this group, does it have structures of toxic control, right? Is this group hurting people? Like there's these different questions we can ask without getting stuck on the word cult. Mm. But I've found like, even in studying groups, nobody thinks, people don't think of cults as successful groups. They think of them as failed groups, right? And so like in organizational psychology, you don't study cults because as Harvard told me, they're literally not, they don't consider them groups. They consider them sociology, soci sociological, societal problems. Mm. And I'm like, you know, the children of God, like was 10,000 people that gave up everything in the world to follow this man and his craziness for 50 years. Like that is not a failed group. And they brought in millions and millions and millions of dollars, right? It's an extreme group, but it's a very successful group. You know, we could say like terrorist organizations similarly, right? I always wonder why we don't spend more time studying like the motivations of suicide bombers. And I, I really think it's because people are much more comfortable putting things in like black and white, good, bad boxes. I mean, I come at it with this different perspective of like, I grew up in a world where love was weaponized. So don't come at me with your values as a shield, right? Like what's really going on? Anything can can turn toxic, I think. Well, you know, like, you know, we're, we're, I can't speak for you, Derek, but I'm a Catholic, you know, it's a predominantly Catholic country here in Ireland. And, you know, we've overthrown the shackles of the church through a long history of what would some people consider oppression. You know, there's a lot of nasty stuff that happened. You know, there's a lot of sex abuse in the church. Only recently it's back in the news because this guy, you probably didn't notice it, Daniel, but here in Ireland, you see that, Derek, that guy went off on the pulpit. He denounced gay people, mm -hmm. and, you know, giving condoms out. And it was real. It was real. It got Ireland yeah. talking again about, oh, we haven't come that far as a progressive society. But just getting back to the original point is that obviously we believe in, a, a well, Catholics believe in a figure called Jesus Christ who wandered around the desert 2,000 years ago, uh, had a group of male predominantly followers. 
would they not have been considered? Did they not fit the definition <laughs> of a cult? That now, just because it's so popular and successful, that they're not a cult anymore. There's something good as opposed to bad. Yes, and Neil, you know, there's this joke amongst like religious scholars that cult plus time equals religion <laughs> and which is you know i mean it's kind of interesting and and one i think one of the reasons so not to say that all religions are cults but i think it's really easy because so all cults rely on this concept of thought stopping cliches right like whenever you ask a question about the logic that has broken down they say trust the plan. God has spoken to me, right? Boys will be boys. <laughs> we have all these thought-stopping cliches in our society, but religions have thought-stopping cliches built in, right? Like you only go so far by logic and then you trust by faith. So again, not saying, you know, all religions are cults, but it's just that people with toxic power and control in mind can use religions relatively easily because of those structures and because it's so easy anytime someone's questioning to just, you know, you have to take it on faith, right? And so I actually think, Neil, like what's going on is always a good thing, right? Like anytime there's sort of a big scandal in an organization, like that's the time to look at your structures and just be like, you know, if you're actually a good organization, just be like, where is this turning toxic? Where is this coming from? And how do we address this? And that's exactly what happened, Danielle. That's exactly what happened. Awesome. There. You know, we were, the, the, the parish priest was a revered figure. Um, you used to have to clean up the house. Oh my gosh, the, the priest is visiting. You know, he was this untouchable figure and his, his word was law, effectively. And now they're just considered, well, I mean, you know, the falling church attendance rates, priests leaving the priesthood, it's as a structure it's kind of falling apart at the scene it won't survive and they're selling all their property as well so it won't survive so like yeah, the point being you know? the point just get back to what you said Danielle this is what happened they were all coercive all control and now not so much anymore and then when one outspoken priest goes off the grid like this guy did uh, last weekend in, in County Kerry jumps on him like every, you know before that would have been oh oh gays are bad and don't give out condoms and but now he was shouted down it was a big debate and that's so that's healthy right that's it that's yes, yes. Healthy society. And, and I also think this gets to the the question of like when people are like these large organizations like oh is this a cult right like is the catholic church a cult is the army a cult and i'm like no like you need to look way smaller than that right like you need to look at your unit you need to look at your parish right like your parish can be a cult if you have someone with toxic narcissistic you know charismatic leadership at the top because you have all of these other structures of sort of high control groups mm -hmm. and so that's like that's the important thing and yes when when a leader says something and is questioned that is a very good sign like when there is a healthy debate that is a very good sign and i think you know some of the the best religious groups or practices that i see you know, the the leader has this very humble, like, nobody knows what it is. We're all trying to figure it out. We realize that we get these things like community and motivation and, you know, different things from religious groups. So we're like, we're trying to explore this. We're trying to understand this. But it, it almost compares to like, if you ask an academic or an expert a question, they will usually give you what they think, but then also give you the like, all the caveats 
But then if you ask like a con man a question, they will be like, I know everything. This is the answer. Like I have all the answers, right? And so it's, if you look at that, right? Like the more of an expert someone tries to be in whatever context, like the more you should be questioning and the more you should be worried that, you know, that can be become a toxic group. That's it. Yeah. And what what's it like? Okay, so we're we're talking about you know fifteen year old kids, and we're talking about a sex cult and essentially paedophilia, which is what's what was going on here in Ireland with uh, with the, the Catholic Church. But there's laws, right? And I know in Ireland of today, under eighteen is considered paedophilia, and you know you go to jail if you're caught for it. So, what's the purpose of of the the children of God spreading outside the US because they were worried about being chased down by the by the cops or were the authorities in America aware of what was going on in the early days I would like to take just a moment to thank all the historian followers for your support during the first five months of the show both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here we plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future as you can probably appreciate it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves there is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation We'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all. In fact, we will be offering a paid subscription tier. More on that later. And anyhow, if uh, you don't have it, don't worry. Keep tuning in. We'll be here. Thinking of renovating or extending your home this year? Perhaps something a little smaller? New bathroom, new kitchen, help with soft furnishings? Well, look no further than Nine Yards Design Interior Design Studio. Based in Dublin 14, their services are for clients who want help planning and creating a beautiful interior for their home. They can do everything from designing the initial concept, scaled drawings, lighting design, colour schemes, soft furnishings and bespoke furniture, through to styling at completion. They have a wealth of experience working on different size projects from one room to a full redevelopment and can offer their services nationwide. So if you're looking for a touch of class or that's something a little bit different that sets you apart from the rest, check out their work at nineyardsdesign.ie. No, I th- I think it was both, right? I think that, first of all, they didn't get really into the bad sexual abuses, right? That that sort of developed throughout a long period of, I would say, about the first decade, um, you know, where he, like, just started introducing more. Because the first thing you have to do is establish complete control of your followers and get them isolated, right? And then you start introducing your more and more, you know, sort of extreme beliefs, Um, It was becoming problematic to stay in the U.S. just because cults were getting so much attention, right? Jonestown had happened. Charles Manson had just happened. And it's much harder to hide your large communes in the U.S. That's why we see so many cults coming out of Texas. Um, And which is what he did, right? He gathered his followers in California, went to Texas, which is where they got this big ranch. And then my great grandmother donated a house where the prophet lived but then ultimately yes it was idea of persecution which cults rely on true or not right to keep their followers dedicated and in this case it was like well we see what's coming so 
now we have suddenly revelations from God to spread out all over the world. They've all changed their names to these Bible names. To this day, most of us do not know the legal names of our abusers because we just called them, you know, Uncle Jebediah, Uncle Jerry, Uncle So-and-so. Um, so it, it ultimately was very effective, but it, I think was started more in terms of like, let's hide from us officials and people that think we're a cult. And then by the time the really illegal stuff started coming along, you know, in the eighties, it was mass levels of pedophilia. And then in the nineties and two thousands, it was just massive, massive child labor for the most part. And they had a very good structure there for, you know, trafficking children, laundering money, everything that they needed. Well, so a criminal organization for sure. And well, just out of curiosity, so where, where do River and Joaquin Phoenix fit into the story? Uh, very interestingly, actually. So I, I want to say River Phoenix was one of the sort of the first group of children born. And then Joaquin Phoenix is a bit younger. They, you know, their parents... They were all born in the group. And I think mm-hmm. they left Hawking Phoenix was maybe, or River Phoenix was maybe nine, 10. Hawking Phoenix was however much younger. So we, the first thing I would say is I had no notion of how famous he actually was <laughs> until maybe like a few years ago. We were told of it, you know, from this perspective of they were backsliders. They went back to Satan and to the world. And he went off to, you know, evil Hollywood worshiping, you know, Babylon the whore, which was America and mammon, which is money and, you know, the drugs and look what happens. And these kinds of stories were very much used to keep us in line. And like the adults that joined the cult would write there, they called them traumatic testimonies. They would write those, their horror stories of whatever their life was before they found the family. And we would like read those growing up. And so it was all designed to like keep us scared that if we left the cult, we would just become like losers, drug addicts, et cetera. So yeah, that was the that was the River Phoenix story I grew up with. And of course, you know, it takes you like a decade or more to actually question that and be like, you know, not that not that Hollywood's a wonderful place, but like maybe the childhood and the sex cult like also was a big part of this. And yeah, you know, I will say for our part, like we almost all of us cult babies like struggle. We struggle a lot with just all kinds of different things. Like we have a lot of suicidal ideology in our in our group. And I've, I've found like many, many people report the suicidal ideology starting around three or four years old. So when we talk about, you know, even within our community, people don't want to admit how bad it was. And it's like, well, when, you know, little tiny children are this desperate to just go to heaven, it's probably pretty bad. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, Daniela, that an instinct of a cult survivor would be to lay low, to, to keep quiet, to kind of try and recover outside of the public domain whereas you've taken a, a completely different route if i'm right in my what in my in what i'm saying in the first way that they do prefer to be quiet then you've taken a completely different route by being bravely open and honest and dedicate your time to come on here for example and tell us all about it so first off am i right to say that cult survivors their instinct is, is to be quiet and secondly, if that's the case, how come you took this different route to be so open and honest and brave? Yeah, so I don't know if our desire is to be quiet. I think our desire is to find the next group. 
Um, I think that's just very human. Like I tell veterans when they leave the military, like for the next two years, focus on your, like who your people are going to be and what your next mission in life is going to be because otherwise you feel pointless, right? So when we leave cults, we're like, we're looking for our next thing. We're trying to either deal or, or forget about the trauma. And so sometimes, a lot of times it's be very quiet so you can fit in, but a lot of times people end up in sort of second cults or very, very religious in a different group or, you know, super vegan and always evangelizing about it. You know, like people will get their cause and become like a crusader for that cause sometimes is very common. Mm -hmm. What I would say about my story too is next year, it'll be 20 years since I've left the cult. So, you know, I was very, very quiet about it for a full decade. And it's actually one of the things I think with a lot of cult books is, you know, they get their book deal a few years after they leave the cult, usually because of the way they left the cult. And when I was writing my book with 20 years of experience and in hindsight out in the world, I felt like I could put more of it into context. I struggled a bit more on the military side. You know, I, it felt a bit more biased um, and I needed a bit more help with that part. I felt like because it had only been seven years since I left the military and I still wasn't sort of completely over it or, or ready to speak about it. So sorry, it's long answer, but both things you said, <laughs> I think. are about. Right on. No, we loved, we loved those answers because it's just such a fascinating subject. And, you know, here, here we go, go again, back to the definition of good versus bad. The, the children of God, bad military, because in the military in America is revered, right? There's mm. like high, huge respect. It's got a great. It, it's like you know when you meet we meet Americans here in Dublin, tourists and that. The common expression, if you know, is th- that they they use is "thank you for your service," right? But only to-, to the men. But only to the men. Really. So okay, so let me tell you a few things about okay, this. So that's, that's how I started uncultured basically i just said you know i'm going to be a speaker and i want to write about my experiences in this cult and in the military and people would say to me oh well the cult that's obviously evil which no matter how evil it is it's not obvious and if you've been there you know i i wanted to show that and then they would say but the u.s army that's a wonderful organization and I, like you, right, like I'm bringing this different perspective because I grew up in South America where people have a healthy fear of the military, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a reason why every country other than Brazil, who, you know, Bolsonaro was a Trump fanboy, but every other Latin American country did relatively well at COVID because when the military marches through the streets and says, stay in your house, they do it. And so I will absolutely have a chapter in my next book called the deification of the military and the cult of the veteran, because I have been fascinated by this since I joined the military. And I, you know, the U S army is 1.3 million people trained to kill other human beings. Like that's what it is right at the very base. And so there's all of this sort of programming and, and motivation and everything that we do to, to go along with it. Um, and there was something else you said that got me very excited, but now I am blaming. Yeah, well, it's like, you know, when you go to the States, you know, you go to America, you see like they, um, 
they have all the veterans stand up and everybody applauds them. And there's that common expression that I've heard, you know, thank you for your service. Thank you. But you said only for the men. Oh, so so that's what I was going to say. Okay, so I and I actually have been trying to place an article on this for Veterans Day, but it's hard because we are the invisible veterans. And when when people say invisible veterans, they tend to be referring to women. And so I this another uh thread in Uncultured was me spending so much time thinking about the parallels between children in the cult and women in the military. Mm. And, you know, I get told all the time, you don't seem like a cult survivor, even by people who've never met one. And I get told all the time, you don't look like a veteran. And I actually did this survey for two years while I worked at a veteran nonprofit where I asked every veteran, what is the first thing civilians say when they find out you're in the military? And almost every man without exception is confused and then they, they're like, why are you asking me that? It's thank you for your service. And almost every woman without exception was like, uh, what do you mean? They say like, you don't look like a soldier or you two are pretty to be in the army or, well, they didn't make soldiers like you when I was going through, you know? And so <laughs> it, it becomes this thing. I didn't learn until I started studying microaggressions, but it's called a micro invalidation, right? So like my husband and I, who both served, you know, the same person that will say to him, thank you for your service will say to me, you don't look like a soldier. And then I'm having to be like, well, I was, you know, and kind of reinsert this. And one of the reasons I think this is very significant is because we don't know, right? We think we know what cults are like and cult survivors are like, but we don't. And we think in America that we know what the culture is like for the women, the daughters of America, when we disappear behind these high commune walls of the Department of Defense. And we don't because we never tell the stories of women veterans. And we very much have this culture of like, you asked to be here, don't complain, don't talk about it, keep your head down. And I think that the statistics, you know, the deification of the military is so, so high that the statistics of, you know, one in three, one in four of the women that wear the uniform are being assaulted. And I think it's much higher than that. Like, doesn't even seem to shock Americans anymore. And part of why I wanted to write this book was to sort of bring them through the culture and what it's like for us. Yeah. And when people, you know, relate to it then, Daniela, you know, did they say, yeah, you're, you're, you're hitting post the mark here. This, this is my experience. Do other female soldiers say that to you? Do they? Oh yes. So from, from women veterans, it's, get out of my diary. Like we've all heard this joke, right? About women in the military, or their bitch, a slut or a dyke. Like we've all heard some version of this. We've all had to deal with the arguments of whether or not women like deserved to be here. And just, just like the simple fact, like you've, you've never been called like female in your life. Like your gender has never been so important until you join the military. And it just sort of becomes this exhausting thing that we're having to live with every day. I say that you know, my number one job in uniform was to make them forget that I was a woman so that they would let me do my job. And so I feel like women veteran absolutely agree. I've had a lot of male veterans say that they didn't expect to agree to relate to the story as much. But because I'm talking about all the group dynamics, right? I'm emphasizing what it's like for a woman, or I say what it's like to be a sister in the band of brothers. But 
it it shows you it brings you through all these group dynamics so i think male veterans relate to it just as much and i'm also finding that you know regular civilians are relating to because these group dynamics exist in every group they're just pretty extreme like in a cult or in the military which is what i was trying to highlight and i wonder danielle that you know is this an american problem because for the example of, of the in the israeli military um they don't differentiate you know like they have a new they have a tank unit now that's completely operated by by females and their their military are so proud and the people are so proud of of you know they, they have mandatory service there and everybody sees it as, as a badge of honor to do that and the women are held as as high regard as the men you know and we're seeing it in ukraine at the moment mm-hmm. interestingly enough mm-hmm. you see that the ukrainian women are, are right up in the front lines with with the men fighting the russians and they are as revered as the men maybe more so maybe not maybe they're just seen on a level platform so is it is it just an american issue do you think so it's absolutely an american sort of cultural problem right one of the you know interesting example i can give you right one of the most successful snipers of all times is a russian woman and one of the requirements for being a successful sniper in the American army was to be very, very tiny, right? Because you need to fit in tiny places. Nothing about being like a man or a woman, but if you're a woman, you're much likelier to be tiny, right? And so this was the kind of thing, like as soon as they let women into actual combat roles, like finding people to train as snipers became a little easier, right? And it was only our prejudice, like we have this example from as far back as World War II, and it was only our prejudice. And I mean, it really does tie into a lot. America is a pretty sexist country still. Israel was built a lot more recently. So not that it's not sexist, but it's a little less sexist. And different values get baked into different organizations, right? So in the military, like the army especially has a long, pretty bad history, the U.S. Army with rape and with sexual assault and sort of rape and war just together. And so, you know, I would say even amongst military and police, it's fascinating to look because we look at the American police who have a history of racism they haven't addressed. And we are baffled as to why they can't stop killing black people. Like, we don't even go that trigger ready into war. They look at us and they wonder why we can't stop raping each other in our groups because we have not dealt with this. Um, and one of the even very interesting stories that my friend Danielle brought back from her trip to Africa was she, and I forget which African country they were working with, but I think it was Djibouti where we have a base. And she asked the the female major that she worked with, she said, do you all have a problem with rape in the armed forces? And this major said, absolutely not. Because if somebody raped somebody, they would be dragged out to the village square and like stoned. What we do have a problem with is the men beating their wives so badly that their wives can't put on their uniform and come to work, right? So it's like this completely different cultural problem um and i think that the combat ban which comes from you know the patriarchy and like thinking women aren't good enough to do this but it fed the rape culture so much because you have a a bunch of humans that are trained to violence and then you have a group of us that are we're specifically told 
we are not as good as them. So of course, this is going to like end up with more violence. And, and what is the draw though? I mean, it, it sounds to me there's a bit of a, like the, the it, women sign up voluntarily for the military. And again, <clears throat> obviously people sign up voluntarily to be part of a cult, as I said, not necessarily signing up for the cult, but to be part of that group. Is it the same type of dynamic that's going on, do you think? Yes. I mean, people join the military for all kinds of reasons. So, but one of the things is that in the U.S., the military for us is a very pretty successful, like social elevator. So, you know, my husband, for example, came out of very, very not well-to-do family and he retired as a helicopter pilot and has his GI Bill and is, you know, will be probably making six figures for the rest of his life. So I think a lot of people and especially a lot of women that join the military are coming from situations where like the military was their way out. Mm. Um, and then the the other dynamic too is like, I think the whole concept of you know what you sign up for is always flawed, right? Because we don't talk about what it is like for women in the military. So, you know, one of the... Uh, feedbacks one of the reviews that I get a lot on my book is like do you expect us to feel sorry for this woman she signed up for the military knowing that the military was full of dangerous violent men and I'm going like well that's not the message we give Americans right like I signed up for the military knowing that we commit to loyalty and honor and duty and respect and all of these values right and we worship our military if we we're talking a little bit more honestly about like, well, if one in five of the women is getting raped, right, or one in four of the women is getting raped, then what does that mean about the men in uniform? And if we talked about that a little more, I think that, well, right now they're having the blowback where Gen Z does not want to join the military. And it's not just the women, it's all of them. But it's especially because one of the few times we hear about women is when they are raped or murdered and on the news and we're not hearing you know so we hear these like very successful rah you know like the article they published about me when i was in ground combat as one of the first women or we hear the like the raped and murdered but we're not hearing kind of all the in between so part of what i think needs to happen here is the military needs to get to 20 percent or higher women as fast as possible, because that's the point at which you can really start kind of breaking down and addressing stereotypes subconsciously. But we need to be openly talking about this stuff and debating this stuff and be really real about like what the culture is, because that's how we have, you know, not only are the women better protected, but what I've seen since I started telling my story is like the good men alongside us get radicalized to be our protectors, to be the ones that call each other out on the bad behavior. And like, so that's how we fix it. Brilliant. So that's like, yeah, I was just about to say, like, I mean, it's true people like yourself that this is the only way that things will change, right? Somebody has to be the flag bearer. Somebody has to stand up and tell it as it is, as you are doing now. Is that what you see now yourself going forward, Daniel? Is, is you know, a woman on a mission to, to change... <laughs> um first the military then society is like do you do you, do you feel like this is your goal now this is your you know your... i try to be careful about missions um <laughs> but <laughs> i a big part of the why 
me was because this woman named Vanessa Guillen was went missing. She wasn't looked for. Then she was found murdered. And I had this immediate reaction that, as you were saying, Neil, like somebody needs to put it all on the page and not like, Daniela, are you a proud veteran or are you a sexual assault survivor? It's like, you know, in Uncultured, you see me as the only woman going out on these patrols, and you also see me being pulled aside and told to watch my back against the 25 Americans that I'm going on patrol with. And I was like, we need to just, we need to put it all out there, and we need to have these conversations. So I don't think my goal is necessarily to change the military, but I think it, you know, part of why I wrote this was to demonstrate to my husband, for example, that my experience was different than his, right? Because the military is literally created for six foot two blonde, blue eyed Tom Young to go through and be very successful and with very little friction. And that's what he did. But every sort of demographic you get away from, that it's harder and harder for you and so part of what I wanted was to open the eyes and sort of radicalize as it were the the good uncles the good men that are just not seeing the problem Mm -hmm. and then they can call it out right like because we signed up to be there we asked to be there we are still begging and proving our way in So, you know, many women, for example, wouldn't feel they're on an infantry team, they can call someone out for an abusive joke. Mm. But if a man looks at another man, as my husband does all the time, and just goes, come on, dude, we're better than that. That dude's not going to make that joke anymore. Even though I, I can tend to take a pretty, you know, negative view of groups, I do think like most American soldiers are good humans. We just don't have an actual sort of pulse on the experience of women as a force because we haven't talked about it. We haven't written about it. We haven't really done this at at scale the way the men are doing. Finally, Daniela, like, are you happy now? Are you happy where you are? And, and do you feel that what you went through or experienced, the trauma, the cult, the, even the military, was part of the reason of why you are and where you are at today, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? It does, but (laughs) I won't have a yes or no answer. Mm. Um, I think part of the way we talk about trauma is a little bit of the problem. Like we talk about someone as a survivor or someone that has like come through it all and been victorious. And I feel like last Thursday I had a super successful book event, but I didn't get out of bed till five because it was just emotionally a bad day right and so I am happy I'm working on joy I'm working on overcoming my trauma I have a wonderful support system in my life and like all of these things are good and yes of course it is because of everything I've come through but I always just like to caveat that with I still would rather go back and have the normal childhood and you know um, I still know that I will be dealing with the effects of trauma for the rest of my life and so we'll sort of all the people who choose to be in my life. Okay, well, I hope it makes yeah, a difference. Before, before we kind of wrap things up, I suppose, like where, where, I mean, the family as the children of God is called now, the family international. Is there a lifespan on that? Is that going to run out of recruits? You know, are there people actively joining it still today? So I think they, act, they ran out of recruits in 2000. Or in 2009, they had this thing called the reboot, where they realized that basically 
they weren't getting any more recruits as soon as you know as soon as the internet came in i think it was the beginning of the end and as soon as they actually introduced a charter of rights which i i write about in uncultured i think that was the beginning of the end because you can't give people the idea of rights and freedoms without them pushing for more um and so they in 2009 they kind of came out and just said like hey guys all that stuff we've been saying about like separate yourself from the world like jk go get jobs put your kids in school and like we will still be here to support you um so at this point like most people just made their break with it but there are still you know 1400 members they're still bringing in like a million dollars a year my grandfather still runs the money so i definitely think there's an expiration date and it's whenever you know most of the people that were alive in 1968 are no longer with us. I don't think they're getting a lot of new recruits, but, you know, they have many, many children. So even some of these 60, 70 year old people still have 10 or 11 year old kids that they're still raising according to some of these principles. It, it, it'll definitely expire though before the end of times. That's for sure. <laughs> we know that, that for sure. Yeah. Yes. Well, listen, Daniela, we could speak to all of wow. honestly, one of, one of our more intriguing guests, yeah. you know, a lot of our guests are kind of, you know, history related. And this is, you know, not deep, deep dyed in the wool history, but, it, <laughs> you know, as far as we're concerned, history is right up to yesterday. And it's a very, very important message, a fascinating, fascinating story and very brave. And I want to thank you for your time and open honesty. Could be an amazing guest here on the historians. And thank you for that. Really, thank you for that. A fascinating well, Thank you so much, you know, and I, to this point, right, I think like the history of this is part of what's important, right? It's part of like, because I've had this experience, can I compare it to other things? But like, why aren't we looking at these groups as, you know, like QAnon has been referred to as the world's first super conspiracy, like MAGA is definitely a cult, right? Like we have so much polarization. I don't know how it is for you in Ireland, but in America here, like it has gotten pretty bad. And so I really think like it is important to look at the work of cult scholars and like these groups and all this stuff that came out of the 60s and 70s because we are in many ways experiencing it again. So thank well, you so much for having me. Gordon, welcome. Carry on the good work. Yeah. Very, very thank important. Thank you so much. Yeah. And yes, exactly. Get it out there, <laughs> folks. It is just, you know, yeah. really, really important stuff and a dang good read. Thank you. And I did, there's an audio book. There's an audio book too, if folks prefer that. The audio book was recommended by the New York Times. So it's not awful. Um, so yes, any any manner that you like to read books, please pick up a copy. And come find me on Twitter for yeah. however long it continues to exist. Exactly, yeah, that's a whole other <laughs> a whole other story. That's it, folks. It's an uncultured a memoir uh, by Daniela. Um, I struggle with your surname a little bit, Daniela. Mestinek. Mastinek, Mastinek, and that's, that's a whole other story there, Young. A really great, important, and a fascinating story, Uncultured Memoir. And as you said, you can get it on all those outlets. And buy books, people. Buy books. They're good for you. They're yeah. good for you. Buy yeah. books, yes. Buy books. <laughs> One of the best ways to make sure that you are not getting isolated, which is what cults and toxic control rely on, is reading whatever you want, whenever you want, not letting anyone else tell you what to read. That's why it's important. Well, well, you heard, heard it here from the horse's mouth as well. Daniel, thank you so much and have a lovely evening. Thank you.
Thank you. Yeah, we'll follow your story. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you go. My gosh. Yeah, never never, sure. never know quite what to expect with something like that. It's not our usual foray into history, uh, talking about sex cults and things like that. With, with somebody, like it, it could be uncomfortable and very interesting to hear uh, like how she's trying to make her peace with that trauma and that lengthy process of on having left one cult you know, to replace it with another, then to realize that, you know, shit, I haven't I haven't got this right. And now to go through the process of writing about it. And that's still not the end of the story. And she said that, you know, it's uh oh that that runs deep. You now it runs deep for her. Really do it. Gosh, she's so inspiring. You know, it's, it's such a you know composed, yeah. calm character considering all that she's been through. You know, you 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 the I suppose the, the human in you, your heart goes out to to her, but she it doesn't look like she needs anybody's sympathy or or pity or anything like that. She's like a strong, well educated, well spoken, like really. Well, she she was she was brave enough. Neil. I mean, like imagine like she's like okay, you know, she's talking about you know men and how they interact in the in the armed forces with women. She's talking about rape, and she's on a podcast, kind of trapped between two men, you know. And you're taking that on. She doesn't know us. That's the thing. So she had to be brave enough to go just to give it a go and see, you know, what she wasn't afraid of what our reactions might have been. But like Absolutely, that. but that, you that's know, where the, the, yeah. But you know what? We're nice guys, so you know. She was in the true, <laughs> as you know, folks. In good company, yeah. In good company. Okay, and with that, we'll better wrap it up here. Uh, thanks very much, everybody, for joining us. Another, I thought, it was a pretty, pretty damn interesting episode of the Hip Story. Derek, we'll keep it going for as long as we can, and keep on hitting you up every Thursday with a brand new release. So just keep, keep on listening. Yeah, keep Julio. Yeah, keep on listening. Keep turning up. All right. Thanks very much, folks. Night, Neil. Thanks, folks. Thanks, Derek. Uh,